please open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I don't know what it looks like in your Bible, but when you turn to verse 18, we're reading 18 and studying 18 through 22. When, when, when you look at my Bible, it looks like we're getting towards the end of 1 Peter already, and I don't know how that's happened, but <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a great study. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter and study together God's Word. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've spent worshiping you. And now, Lord, as we continue to worship you, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and minds. And Lord, that we would be encouraged by your word and challenged. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever thought about the greatest thing that you could ever do? What's the greatest thing you could ever do? The most impactful, the most lasting, greatest thing that you could ever achieve. Many of us have kind of resigned ourselves to the fact that we're probably not going to do anything historically great in the, in the timeline of the history of the world, right? Um, our name is not going to be in history books memorized by bored high schoolers, <laughs> right? Um, our name is not going to be the answer to a test question. People may not be debating how to pronounce our name after we're, is it Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan, you know, <laughs> that's probably not going to be us. But even if we don't do anything that will mean our name will be remembered, maybe we don't do the greatest things in the history of the world, one of the desires of us is to leave something behind, to, to do something or be something great. And the measuring stick for that is changing very quickly. Uh, sometimes people think, that greatness is lots of followers on TikTok or YouTube or Facebook. Uh, they count the number of followers there, and, and you know, there are people doing pretty ridiculous things to get a lot of followers on TikTok and Facebook and YouTube. There are people, you know, when I was, when I was a, a kid, my parents told me that you, can, you would never make money playing video games, so you better find something else to do. And um, there are people today getting rich, playing video games, recording it, and then put whole YouTube channels, whole TV channels on people playing video games, right? And followers like crazy. Um, TikTok and, and Facebook, people f getting famous every day for doing bizarre things, absurd things. But most of that's not really considered great, right? Just because you have a lot of followers or a lot of people know who you are, watch those channels. They're entertained for a while. And then it kind of fades away, and it doesn't take long for somebody else to take their place, right? That's why they call it 15 minutes of fame. It's not really, it's not really greatness, right? 
But the standard of greatness is, is changing fast today. It's changing very quickly. Look at, for example, at the historical figures that people are looking back and re, rethinking um, whether people have been great in history. They're rejudging those, those figures, people who were once thought to be great because of momentous acts or courageous stands or significant breakthroughs. They're being reevaluated now in a different standard, and maybe they had some faults that, were, that are considered to overshadow what made them considered great to begin with. Now, as for whether those decisions are fair, that's a, time for, that's a topic for another time. But greatness is changing, and it's changing very quickly in our time, maybe faster than we can keep up with. And maybe that's one of the reasons that for many of us, we've just said, oh, forget it, I'm not going to try for greatness. I don't need to be great. But it also requires a lot of sacrifice to do something and to, to be great at something, doesn't it? usually requires an immense amount of dedication, willingness to sacrifice almost anything and everything else for that greatness. So when we consider greatness, it may just be that we don't want to sacrifice. We don't want to put forth the work or the energy for greatness. But why are we talking about this after reading these verses in 1 Peter? Well, because we've been talking a lot about suffering lately. A lot about suffering in the, in the last few weeks, suffering for following Jesus, suffering for dedicating our lives to holiness that glorifies our God. And, and holiness, as we've talked about, means not being like the world, not being like we once were before we knew Jesus, but living for good, for God's glory. And living in a holiness that is holy like God is holy, as he tells us. And, you know, that requires a lot of sacrifice. It's, it's very difficult to do that. It's a constant battle against the desires of our flesh, against what's comfortable to us, and it's a very real battle that we can't fight on our own, but we don't have to fight on our own because we have the Lord with us. But He requires that we put forth a lot of effort towards living that way, towards holiness, doesn't He? And so holiness is difficult, in fact, impossible on our own, but even with the Lord's help and, and requiring our effort, it is a difficult thing. But with all that sacrifice, all that difficulty that we're trying to do as we live for holiness, it doesn't lead to greatness in the world. Now, we don't even want to aspire for greatness because of how hard it is now if we know that it's not going to be great. How much more difficult is that sacrifice going to be for us? And we've been learning about how not only is it going to be difficult to grow in holiness and to live for the glory of our Lord, but now we've been talking about persecution from the world and maybe our whole culture coming against us for living for holiness, for the sake of our Lord. There may be some slandering and some reviling and some saying really hurtful, offensive things which bring suffering inside, and then there can also be physical suffering of persecution and outside suffering, so there's a lot of suffering that can come for living for righteousness. Last week, we saw some encouraging truth to prevent us from being afraid of that because it's a possibility that it can happen. But the question that we may be asking at this point is, why? Why does God call us to all of this suffering? And we've looked at two different verses here in First Peter alone where it says, to this you've been called, right? To this you've been called. Two different times, chapter 2, verse 21, and chapter 3, verse 9. Why does He call us to suffering for righteousness? Why does God have this in store for us? I mean, He's the greatest one ever, right? I mean, He's God. He's, he's above all of creation. There's nobody as great as Him. Even all of the superheroes that DC or Marvel could ever come up with can't touch God, right? 
Nobody is as great as God, even our imagination. We can't even fully grasp all that he is. He, he knows everything. He can do everything. Why does he call us to suffer then? <laughs> At this point, we may be thinking that as, we've, as we're reading in Peter's letter here. When people come to believe in Jesus, they turn away from their sins. Instead of suffering, why don't we get to become superheroes? <laughs> why don't we get to have a lot of power? You know, what good does suffering do, Right? That may be the question that's coming to our mind, and, and that's the question that Peter begins to anticipate and begins to answer for us. You know, shouldn't we be doing the greatest things? Wouldn't it be better for God's glory if, like, I came to Jesus, and all of a sudden I became super strong and super knowledgeable and, and super powered, instead of, like, all this suffering? Isn't it a waste? You know, I mean, Christians throughout history have had to suffer for our Lord. Nobody even remembers their names. Wouldn't it have been better if they had just become great? It might seem better to us. It might seem like that would be a really cool idea. But that's not part of God's plan. And remember that we don't see everything. We don't know everything like God does in His infinite wisdom, His limitless knowledge, His incomprehensible understanding. He has decreed that we're going to suffer for His name. But why? Why does God want us to suffer? You know, after reading verse 17 from last week, it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What's that about? How could it be better to suffer? Well, in these verses, verses 18 to 22, Peter is going to give us four examples to consider to learn why it would be better for us to suffer than to suddenly become great. And, and this is suffering for righteousness. This is not suffering because of being in the world. Remember, that's kind of a backdrop for us. We understand that Everybody has some suffering in this world because of sin. Our sin brought suffering and death into this world. So we understand that, right? Because that kind of goes for everybody. But as we're learning about holiness and we say, okay, we're, we're stepping into more suffering, we're, if, if we're scratching our heads going, why? That's why Peter's going to give us these verses. When we come to Jesus, there'll be additional suffering. What does it accomplish? The first example that Peter gives us for the usefulness of suffering for righteousness is the example of Christ's ultimate suffering to save. Verse 18. Christ's ultimate suffering to save. Now we've talked about before about all that Jesus suffered while he's here. You know, as the limitless God, he became a limited human being. He couldn't be everywhere all at once. He, he set aside everything that, that makes him God. He didn't stop being God, but he set aside the use of, of, of being God, his divine attributes. He served everybody while he was here, right? The things that we know that Jesus did, he, he healed people. He wore himself out serving people. Uh, he never sinned. He endured any and every kind of temptation that will ever endure Maybe not the same way, but he endured every kind of temptation, yet he never sinned. He was publicly humiliated, mocked, stripped, beaten, killed on the cross, shamed. On the cross, he hung on the tree which came with a curse. I mean, he suffered. Um, as he went to the cross, he shouldered our sins. His own father turned his face away from him. He died a human death. He died that terrible, excruciating death on the cross. And then he was taken down by mere people and laid in a tomb that wasn't even his. Right? So, so we have talked about a lot of these ways that Jesus suffered. And all of that is wrapped up in this word here in verse 18, suffered. It, it's everything that he suffered from his life, through his passion, through his death. 
And we've talked before, this was the greatest suffering that anybody has ever been called to suffer because of our sins on him. But here's what Peter is saying. That suffering that he endured accomplished something greater than anything anybody else has accomplished. In the greatest suffering that anybody has ever endured, he accomplished more than anyone has ever endured. If anybody should have been able to be a superhero on earth, it should have been Jesus, right? As God-man. And God did work miracles through him, but he suffered like we'll never understand. But even if the world doesn't think much of what Jesus did, even if Jesus isn't great in the world's eyes, we know better because he saved us. Was it a waste when Jesus suffered? Was it a waste when Jesus suffered? No, no. Look at what God did through Jesus' suffering. He saved us. There are four highlights. These are in your notes um, as blanks, so you'll have to fill them in as we go along. A, the first one was sufficient sufficient. Jesus' death was sufficient. He says in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once. Once. It means one time, for all time. He suffered only one time. When he suffered and died, he cried out in John 19.30, it is finished. Amen. Because it was finished. He didn't say, um, you know, well, I've, I've done almost everything I need to do. Um, I've done everything I can. Now it's time for you to kick in, right? He didn't say it's, it's almost finished. He said it is finished. He's done everything needed and required by God to save us. That's why Paul writes in Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin. How many times? Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus' death was sufficient. It was sufficient. It was enough to save us. Three more times in Hebrews. Hebrews 9.26. These are in your notes. You don't have to write them down. Hebrews 10.10. Hebrews 10.14. Again, once for all. Once for all. For all time. He never has to do it again. And no one else needs to do it because Jesus has already done it. Right? It was sufficient. It was enough. Nobody else could save us. Even if... We tried for our entire lives. We can never save ourselves, let alone anybody else. Because Jesus did it, and he did it perfectly. His suffering and his death was and is still sufficient for us to be saved. And it's the only way for us to be saved, through Jesus Christ. So that's what Peter says. He suffered once. B, the next, the next one that shows that this was not for nothing. B, it was propitiatory. And some of you are looking at me like I just sneezed. So let me spell that for you. <laughs> P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-O-R-Y. That's a big word, right? Propitiatory. What does that mean? Why would we talk about big words like that? What, why would we do that? Because these are precious words. These are words that have so much meaning to them about what Jesus did, about how he saved us. These are, these are not just big words for us to throw around and make ourselves try to feel smart. These are important terms and concepts and ideas for us to understand about what Jesus did. His death was propitiatory. Uh, Peter says he suffered once for sins. What are sins? Sin is, according to 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness, right? God is the lawgiver. The lawgiver gave the law, and we said, no, thanks to your law, God. We'll do what we want. 
It's, it's any thought, feeling, word, or deed that's contrary to God and His law. But it's not just that. Sin becomes a state of being for us, a, a nature that we become. And that's why even our good deeds are tainted with sin, because we're just infected and affected by sin. And the wages of those sins, not just our sins, but our sin as our nature, the wages of sin is death. It's death. Eternal death. We deserve that. But in Jesus' suffering, in His suffering and His death, it was propitiatory, which means it, it takes away God's wrath. It takes away God's wrath for our sins because He takes away our sins and He gives us His righteousness. And when Jesus takes our sins, He pays for them on the cross. And since He's already paid for them fully, it's sufficient. There is no more wrath. There is no more punishment for us because our sins have been taken away. And He's given us His righteousness. So this is an amazing thing that Jesus did in his suffering. God's wrath is appeased. There is no judgment for us in Christ Jesus. That's why we did the Lord's Supper this morning. That's what we're celebrating. That's what we're proclaiming. That's what we sing about. That's what we pray. Nothing that we had or did could do this. Jesus did this for us. Hebrews 2.17 says he took on human flesh to become a man just like us, a human person, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For our sins, not for our weaknesses, not for our limitations, um, not for our sicknesses. One day he'll remove those, but for now, we still have those. We will still be able to suffer, and we still will suffer. But he paid for our sins. And he was totally successful in paying for those sins and taking them away from us. You have more verses in your notes for studying these, these precious truths. But next, see... What Jesus did when he suffered was substitutionary. Another long word, substitutionary. If you like a shorter word, but a bigger word, it's vicarious. Vicarious. It's taking the place of. Peter says Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's The righteous is singular, speaking of Jesus, for the unrighteous, plural, that's all of us. The one righteous for all of us unrighteous people in our place. The penalty had to be paid, and it has to be paid unless it's paid already. So it's either going to be me forever in hell under God's wrath, under his punishment, or it's going to be Jesus on the cross. Because he was, his, his death was substitutionary. It was in my place. That's why I love this verse. I love all of these verses, and I love 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our place. He took away our sins. He took away our place, and he suffered under God's wrath, and he gave us his righteousness. Peter already talked about that in chapter 2, verse 24. It says, he himself bore our sins, not his own, because he didn't have any. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. What an amazing, an amazing accomplishment. In this amazing amount of suffering, there was an amazing accomplishment. Now you have Isaiah 53 in your notes. Just read through Isaiah 53 and note how many times he refers to Jesus in my place because of my sins, because of what I've done. Finally, D, Jesus' sacrifice, it was not for nothing, it was atoning. 
It was atoning. Again, a big church word that we don't hear out very much in the world. We don't use it very much. But we should because Jesus' death was atoning. That He says, uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus brought us to God. Uh, to, to be atoning means to make amends, to make peace. He, he gave us a relationship with God. We were divided from that relationship. We could not have a relationship with God because of our sins, but he did that. He reconciled us to God. He atoned for our sins, took them away, made peace, brought reconciliation between us and God. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, the gospel, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Romans 5, Paul says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, the suffering that Jesus went through. And so verse 11 of Romans 5 says, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're not enemies of God anymore in Jesus. This is an amazing accomplishment of Jesus. All that he did, he removed God's wrath. He made peace between us and God. What happened as Jesus died? In Matthew 27, 51, the curtain was torn, it says. You say, what curtain? What does that mean? <laughs> Big deal, a curtain was torn. It was the curtain that was installed in Exodus 26 that separated us from being able to get to God. God is too holy for us for us sinners to be able to get to him. So there was a curtain that divided us. But Jesus, when he died, the curtain was torn in two. From top to bottom, just ripped in half. Now we, in Jesus, have access to God. He made amends. He brought reconciliation. This, this word for bringing to God refers to the one who would decide whether you would get to see the king. The king is inside, and, and you don't get to just go marching up to the king. So there would be a person who would decide, yes, you can go. No, you don't get to go. And then that person, if he decided you could go, would come in and announce and usher you into the presence of the king. That's what Jesus did. That's what he does for people, for sinners. He announces us and he brings us into the Lord where we could never go on our own. Now, there's so much more that Jesus did. We could, we could go for weeks just on what Jesus did in, in, in all of this, but for the purposes of this passage, we're going to keep moving. Suffice it to say, Jesus' suffering was not a waste, was it? After he was put to death in the flesh, Peter says, in the flesh, in the sphere of the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. Now, some of you have translations that have a capital S for spirit, and some of you have a lowercase s. Um, and that's referring to whether the Holy Spirit raised him up or whether he was just raised in spirit. Whichever way you take it, the reference for that clearly is that he was raised from the dead, out of the grave. After all he did to save us, he also rose from the dead in power and victory over sin and death. But the focus is on all of the suffering that Jesus did and how effective it was in saving us. That's the example that Peter gives us here in verse 18. It was not for no reason at all that Jesus died and suffered. It was for a very important reason. It was the, the greatest suffering to produce the greatest result of our salvation. So then what is our lesson? What are we to take from this example? That when I suffer, I can save somebody else from their sins? No, that, would, that wouldn't be the lesson that I could save anybody. Jesus already did it, right? It was sufficient already. We can't shoulder anybody else's sin and pay for it like Jesus did. But the lesson... For us, from these verses, from verse 18, is that suffering for righteousness is profitable for God's purposes of salvation. It's profitable for God's purposes of salvation, not so that I can, but so that Jesus can and does and will. 
but he's using my suffering to bring that about in the life of other people and even in myself. When Paul told a prophet named Ananias to go lay his hands on this guy named Saul, Ananias said, God, are you sure you want me to do that? Do you know who Saul is? The guy that's persecuting your church? The, the, the guy that was standing there when Stephen was martyred? The guy who's throwing people in jail? The guy who's killing people? God, are you sure you want me to go to that guy? God tells him in Acts 9, 15 and 16, patiently, <laughs> he says, yeah, I know who he is. And I'm sending him out to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and Israel. Why? Because I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God said, I'm sending Saul out as a witness and to bring the gospel to other people, and he's going to suffer to do it. Paul wouldn't save them, but Jesus would as Paul brought Jesus and the gospel of Jesus to those people. You say, well, that, you know, I'm glad I'm not Paul then. <laughs> but it wasn't just Paul who will suffer to bring salvation, the good news of salvation. He includes others, the people who worked with him in ministry in 2 Corinthians 4. He defends his ministry there along with those who are working with him. And he says, we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. We are weak, but God is strong in the gospel. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What does it look like then? How weak are they? He said, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That's the power of God. In his weakness, we are perplexed in God's power, but not driven to despair. In his weakness, persecuted in God's power, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So he said, as we bring the gospel, we just keep on suffering. But we keep on suffering as we bring the gospel, and it's showing our weakness and God's power and his strength in his message. But just so that we don't feel left out, it's not just Paul, and it's not just those people in ministry, it's all of us that we can be called to suffer for the gospel. He writes to the Philippians. In chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. As you suffer for the gospel and as you stand firm and endure, it's a clear sign to you of your salvation. And for others, it's the destruction that's coming unless they turn and repent as well. For the Philippians, it wasn't just a possibility like it was to the writers, I mean, uh, to the audience of Peter here. It was happening. But when it does happen, it's because it's been granted to us, as he writes. So there's a connection here between suffering and the salvation that others share in and that we have because of Jesus as we suffer for him. There's a connection there. God uses our suffering to bring about salvation in ways that he could never use our greatness, our being exalted, you know, being a superhero and have super strength. No, he's exalted when we're weak. So that's the first example. Jesus' suffering that God uses in the greatest way, even our suffering, God can use in great ways. There's a second example that Peter gives. Number two, 
verses 19 and 20, we see the example of constant suffering in Noah's time to save some. Constant suffering in Noah's time to save some. Now, as we come to verses 19, 20, and 21 in in a minute, uh, we've come to what is known as some of the most difficult verses to interpret (laughs) in the Scriptures. Um, One scholar counted over 30 different interpretations that people had for these verses. And not wild and crazy interpretations. I mean, actually, you know, biblically faithful interpretations. Uh, By show of hands, how many would be blessed to go over all 30 of the different interpretations for these verses? (laughs) Some of you would be, yeah. (laughs) Some of you are enthusiastic. Let's do it. You know, we'll order lunch in. Let's go. (laughs) Uh, We're not going to do that. I can point you to some resources and you can just love it to death (laughs) to do that on your own. We're not going to do that this morning. I'm not sure it would even be entirely beneficial for us to... I didn't study all 30 of them, okay? Um, There's not time for that. But these verses, um, they've been difficult for people to interpret. Most scholars agree that these words um, were probably part of a hymn that people would sing. They were part of a hymn. So as soon as you get into artistic language, hymns, songs, poems, things like that, they can be a little bit difficult to interpret. Now, we need to remember that it wasn't for Peter's audience. Their original readers of this letter, it wasn't. They knew exactly what he meant. Uh, for us who have come later, it's been a little bit difficult. Uh, one scholar said, I wish I could just give you the majority opinion on this, but because there are so many, there is no majority opinion on what it means. Um, so, th- we're going to study these verses, um, and we're going to do the best that we can with them. Um, This is what I landed on this week. And you may disagree with some of the details that we go over. Um, If you've studied this before, um, you can do that. That's okay. As long as you don't say something that the Scriptures doesn't say, that the rest of the Word of God doesn't say, and as long as you don't move away from the the point that, that Peter is trying to make here. Okay, so this is what we're going to talk about. And as we look at verse 19... Um, One of the things that people teach is that uh, Jesus went to hell after he died on the cross. Um, He went down into hell, that's where the spirits in prison are, and he proclaimed victory or the gospel or something. He proclaimed something to them, and that's what people teach. Now, brother and sister, I find no scriptural support for that claim that Jesus went to hell. Not in this verse, not in any other verse. I had a smug philosophy teacher in college that made it a point to talk about how ignorant Christians are of their own faith because they don't even know that Jesus had to go to hell after he died. And it was smugness for him, but it wasn't true. Some people teach that, and we're not going to beat up on them. Uh, But for one thing, Jesus didn't need to go to hell. Again, as we read from John 19.30, what did Jesus say on the cross as he died? It is finished. He didn't say, it's almost finished, Father, I'll be coming home soon, I just got to go to hell first, and then I'll come to be with you, right? He didn't say, you know, I just have to feel the flames, and then it'll be done. Then it'll be done. There was not one more thing that Jesus had to do to pay for our sins. It was finished on the cross. For another thing, in Luke 23, 46, as he was dying, he's speaking to the Father, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He, he, again, I'll see you later, Father. I'm dying now. I'm, you know, I'm going to go away, and then I'll come back to be with you when I'm finished. He did not go to hell. He, he went to his Father's hands. He went in to be with the presence, in the presence of the Father. Even if a well-known and edited 
catechism, confession, or creed teaches that he did. Um, I don't see it in the Scriptures. What, what I believe that Peter is saying here in verse 19 and 20 is that it was the same Spirit of Jesus that was within Jesus as he lived and as he suffered and as he died. It was the same Spirit as the one that he was resurrected with, and it was the same Spirit that he had in eternity past. The same Spirit, when, before he had a body, we call that pre-incarnate Jesus, that even existed in the time of Noah, and it has always existed, that's who Jesus is, before he became a man, this is the same Spirit. He, was, he was, uh, lived with that Spirit, he died with that Spirit, he was raised with that Spirit, it was the same Spirit that was speaking and preaching through Noah. And according to Genesis 6, God had given mankind a period of 123 years, 120 years, excuse me, until he was going to flood the earth, and so Noah needed to get to work on an enormous ark. And it was going to be a lot of work and sacrifice. Um, Part of the reason was because he was going to be 600 years old when he went into the ark, so he had to start building at 480 years old. It's going to be tough to build an ark when you're that old, right? But for another thing, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, 5, that Noah was preaching to the people through the whole time that he was building the ark. So Noah was going to be sacrificing and suffering in this time. He's called in 2 Peter 2, 5, the herald of righteousness. That's what Noah was. Not only that, but Hebrews eleven seven 7 tells us that Noah was preaching about things that nobody had ever seen before, nobody had ever heard of before. God's judgment is coming. Rain's going to fall, floods are going to come up, and it's going to destroy the whole earth, right? So Noah is telling them about things that are going to happen nobody's ever seen before, and it's taking a really long time. Sure, Noah, sure that's going to happen, right? It's been 100 years already. It's been 119 years until the 120th year. But it was the pre-incarnate spirit of Christ preaching through Noah, that's what I believe that Peter is saying here, that was preaching to the spirits who are now in prison. They weren't in prison at the time. Uh, Jesus was preaching through Noah to people who, were, uh, who needed to repent, who needed to believe. Now they're in prison, they weren't at that time. As for who those spirits are, um, that's another debate. But the idea is... That through the whole time, through the whole 120 years that Noah was preaching, that he was building the ark, he endured ridicule and scorn and suffering that really we can only imagine because it's not clear everything that he went through. But through that endurance, God not only worked salvation, as we saw in Jesus' perfect example, he did it all for only eight people. Everything that God did through Noah and for Noah and his family, he did for only eight people out of all the entire rest of the population of the planet because he was revealing himself to the world. That's what Peter says in verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So God was revealing himself through that suffering that Noah was enduring. What was he revealing? He showed the world that he's the God of righteousness. He's the God of righteousness and he's the judge of righteousness and sinfulness. Not only is he perfect, not only is he righteous and he's judge, he's the one who carries out that punishment. He's the one who is the executioner, if you will. He's the one who punishes when it's appropriate. He's the one who knows things we don't know. He knows what's about to happen and he can tell us what's about to happen. He's righteous, he's judge, he's executioner, he's omniscient, but even greater than that, he's patient. God's not in a big hurry to destroy people. 
God's not in a big hurry to destroy every sinner. He waited for 120 years as Noah preached righteousness. So God was revealing himself through Noah's suffering. He revealed great things about himself. Not only that he's patient and judge, but that he would care for just eight people. Even out of all of the entire rest of the planet, if only eight people will believe in him, he'll save those people. He cares for the least, he cares for the smallest. So we don't need to be great. We don't need to be the ones who do great things because God is the one who is great. And he's the one who does great things. When we believe in him and trust in him, then we get to be part of his revelation of himself to the rest of the world. That's the lesson from this example. This this lesson under this second example is that suffering for righteousness is profitable to God's purposes of revelation. Suffering's not for no reason. It helps reveal who God is. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul was suffering. He said, there's a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan that's harassing me. He says, I pleaded with God. Please get rid of it. What did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength, my power is made perfect in weakness. In Paul's suffering, God revealed himself to be gracious, gracious enough to get through any situation, and powerful. He's the powerful and good God. And he was teaching Paul that. He was revealing himself through Paul's suffering. In Philippians 3, 7, Paul says, I, I'll give up anything. I'll give up everything so I can know Jesus. Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then he ends with, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Suffering strips away all that stuff (laughs) so that I can know him, so that I can learn about my God, so I can learn about my Savior. Suffering teaches us things about God and our Savior, like our complete dependence on him, that greatness in myself would never teach me. I would never know how much I needed my God and my Savior if I was so wonderful and did so many great things. But if God does them through me, then He is the great one. It's proven and shown to me and to the rest of the world. Now, this is true for all kinds of suffering. (laughs) When we suffer any kind of suffering, this is true. But it's particularly true when we're suffering for righteousness, for the name and the sake of our Savior. So that's the second example Peter gives, the example of Noah and that constant suffering. Number three, the third example in verse 21. Verse 21 is the example of the correspondence in baptism. That's the word he uses, the the correspondence of baptism. Now he makes a connection between salvation and baptism that has been used by many people for some wrong teaching. What he's not saying here is that dunking yourself in water saves you, right? That, that's what he's not going to be saying. Um, you know, if that's what he was saying, dunking yourself in water will save you. Why would we ever make it a point to teach anybody anything? Why would we try to go make disciples as Jesus told us? Why wouldn't we just skip to the baptizing, right? If we were going to evangelize people, why not just carry a wagon around with some water in it? And whenever we found somebody that wasn't in the kingdom, we'd just push them in, <laughs> Right? <laughs> Now, that's not what baptismal regeneration teaches. That's not how it works, what they're saying. But that's not what Peter is saying. He's not saying, if you want to get people saved, baptize them. 
or baptism saves us. He's not saying that, that that's how we get saved. Peter knows that it's not by our works that we're saved, doesn't he? He's already said that in chapter 1, verse 3, God caused us to be born again by our great works. No, by God's great mercy. Uh, through what? Our works like baptism? No, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus accomplishes our salvation. He brings it about by God's mercy and grace, not by any works that we can do. Well, then our works would keep us saved, right? Maybe that's what he means by baptism. No, verse 3 of chapter 1 in 1 Peter, we're guarded by God's power through faith, not works. It's always the, the work of Jesus to save us, to keep us saved, and it's always because of his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Chapter 1, verse 21, we are believers in God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God, not in ourselves, to get baptized or to do any other kind of work. In chapter 2, verse 24, we, uh, he bore our sin in his body and by his wounds we are healed, not by our works, not by getting baptized. Even at the end of this verse, here in verse 21, uh, it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it's always through him. So he's not saying baptism actually saves us. So then what is he saying? Because it almost sounds like that's what he is saying. But he's setting up that correspondence. That's why he uses the word corresponds to between Noah and his family being saved in the ark through water. That's the example that Peter gives us of this example for the lesson of suffering for righteousness for a purpose. When that water came on the earth, it was suffering for Noah and his family. And that water didn't just bring suffering for that family, it brought death to every other family. It killed every other person in the world. Now, the ark was how Noah and his family were brought through it, but that's not mentioned here. It's the water that Peter is using as the picture of the correspondence to baptism. They were saved through the water, the same water that brought death to the rest of the people. So how does baptism correspond to that? Because baptism pictures the death to self and life to Jesus that we have in his, re in his resurrection, in his suffering, in his death. That's what baptism is. That's what baptism is meant to do and to be, to be that picture of death and life that comes out of it. Turn with me to Romans 6 so we can see it explained a little bit more. In Romans 6, Paul is going to be talking about baptism. Now, personally, I believe he's speaking of the spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit upon every believer. The minute you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes within you, baptizes you into salvation into the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe he's speaking of spiritual baptism. Many believe he's speaking of the water baptism that believers um, obey Christ to do. You can, that's okay, you can do that still. <laughs> but here's what Paul says in Romans 6. He says in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now we have died with Christ. 
If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the picture of baptism. That's part of why we're baptism. That's what it pictures, our death in Christ and then our true life in Christ. The water that came in Noah's time was death for everyone but life for Noah and his family. That's the correspondence that Peter sets up here. That's why Peter says it doesn't actually remove, it doesn't even remove dirt from the body, from the flesh. It doesn't even do that, let alone sin from your spirit, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he ends with. But it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus commands it as part of the Great Commission. It's not so that we can get saved. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That's what happens when we have been made a disciple of Christ. We are baptized and then we're being taught all that he commanded. It's crucial to our understanding of what Jesus did and what happens to us in understanding. It's why baptism is commanded as an ordinance to us, a command from Jesus. But here's where we pick up more of the lesson. Believers' baptism, believers being baptized publicly in the water, being dunked and then coming back up, was not what saved them, but it was such a crucial part of their obedience to Jesus, their identity with Jesus, that that became a spotlight on them for the rest of the world to see. So when you were baptized, it was a boundary marker. It was a dividing line between your old self that died with Christ and your new self that's alive in Him. Baptism is that public declaration. But again, people now know who you identify with. Who you used to be is now different from who you are now because of your salvation in Jesus. But that was a, it was a marker for persecution as well. Not just so that I, oh, okay, there's a Christian. It was so, oh, there's a Christian. Now I know who I can come after. Pliny the Younger was governor of Bithynia in the first century, and he was writing to the emperor Trajan in Rome, and he wrote this letter about Christians, this contagion, this COVID-19 on the planet. That's how he looked at them, this contagion, this disease. He said, I'm going to give them three chances to turn away from Jesus. I know who they are because they get baptized, so I'm going to come after them, and I'm going to give them three chances. You can willingly pray to a Roman god, or you can present a drink offering to Caesar, and if you do that, you can be freed, but if you don't, I'm going to kill them so I can get rid of this contagion, this disease of Christians on the planet. They were marked out for that persecution by their baptism. Peter tells the Jewish people in Acts 2, after you've believed and repented, be baptized. He said, they said, what do we need to do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. Not because baptized is how you get saved, but that was what marked them off as believing in Jesus. In Acts 8, when the Samaritans came to believe the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they also were baptized, knowing that it was going to mark them out for persecution. Two chapters later, it was Gentiles coming to the Lord, and that was a big deal. What? The same way that Jews can come to the Lord? Gentiles, we, most of us who are Gentiles, can come to the Lord the same way. He commanded them to be baptized. It invited persecution. It marked you out as a Christian, but it was a critical marker because I was alive before, but I've been crucified now with Christ. 
and now I'm alive in him. And it brings a good conscience, a clear conscience before God. Because no matter what happens, I love him and obey him, and I live for righteousness' sake, for his glory, because I identify with Jesus. I have no shame in Jesus. I have no fear in Jesus. So I'm being baptized in him. You remember what Jesus told John the Baptist? Jesus comes to him and says, you know, baptize me. He says, what? I I need to be baptized by you. Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Not because it's a work of righteousness, but because it fulfills that when we have that conscience, that good, clear conscience before God. So the lesson here in, in this third example is that suffering for righteousness is profitable to God's purposes of purification. Purification. Suffering for righteousness purifies God's people. And when we're baptized and we're marked out for persecution, it it brings that clear conscience and that purity before God. It might mark us out for that, but we do it anyway because we know that the suffering is producing God's purifying of us and of other people around us. You've got Romans 5 and, and James 1 in your notes to study and how, how the suffering, what the suffering produces in us and what it brings about in our lives but it produces a purity in us like no amount of greatness ever could. Like no amount of greatness would ever purify us for God. We die to self, we live for Christ. There's one final example, and it's number four, verse 22. The example of Jesus' complete exaltation. The example of Jesus' complete exaltation, verse 22. He's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Rather than any worldly fame and glory, Jesus endured the greatest suffering, and when it was over, he, God gave him the greatest glory. Forever Jesus is glorified. There's no break, there's no lessening, there's no way of losing that. He's in the highest place of exaltation. Peter says the angels and authorities and powers are subject to them. He rules over all of them. You know, when, when it was mankind that, that caused him to suffer, that killed him on the cross, and, and, and he submitted to the Father's will for that, now he's above every man, every every. Uh, person, every power, every angel that's more powerful than people. He's acclaimed, he's adored, he's worshipped, he's, he's in the place of honor and adulation at the right hand of God because of all the suffering. Romans 8 and Hebrews 7 tell us what he's doing there. He's praying for us. I mean, after all that he did, now he prays for us and cares for us. Such a great Messiah we have. He's there now on the throne in his eternal glory. And Psalm 2 is in your notes so that you can read about the throne that he's sitting on with his father, untouchable by any of his enemies, victorious over all. Psalm 8 is in your notes. He's crowned with glory and honor and all things are under his feet. Psalm 110 prophesies this very thing where the father says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But Hebrews 6 tells us that Jesus went there as our forerunner He went there on our behalf. He made the way for us to be exalted with Him in His glory through His suffering and through our suffering when we're done suffering. When it's over, He calls us home to be with Him. So the lesson for this example is that suffering for righteousness is profitable to God's purposes of vindication. Of vindication. We've talked about it before that that all of the wrongs done to us, God's not going to forget about those. Those people will be held accountable. He will vindicate us. It's the same point that Paul made in Philippians 2, and we won't turn there, but Paul's, Paul's point about how Jesus was humbled beyond anything that you could think of by God himself as God. He, was, he humbled, and then 
he was exalted so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. That's what Jesus' suffering brought was that exaltation. We might suffer here for righteousness and for living for Christ, but if we do, God will lift us up in glory to be with him forever. He will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that God has for us. Galatians 6, Paul tells us, let us not grow weary of doing good. Don't get tired. Don't get worn out. Don't think it's for nothing because in due season we will reap if we do not give up, he says. That's the lesson that we have here in 1 Peter as well. If you want to do great things in your life, if you want greatness, the greatest thing that you can do, it's living for Christ and enduring whatever comes for that. Suffering for him if he calls us to do it. Don't fear it. Don't think there could be a better way. There could be a better plan. This is what God has because look at what he does through our suffering. We follow our Savior. His, his suffering, his death brings us courage because he is, in the words of one commentator, the conclusive and definitive embodiment of the transformation of suffering and death. God brings about amazing glory for us and for himself. If, if you want another example of, of what it might look like if we were great, and we'll, we're closing with this, look at Lucifer. Look at Satan before he fell. He was the greatest, right? He was the most powerful. He was the, the, the most beautiful angel that there ever was, and look what happened to him. As he exploded in pride and rebellion, he fell from that place of temporary honor to eternal punishment. We can go from temporary, punish, uh, temporary suffering to eternal glory in Jesus. So our application. Our application is the lessons that we've been looking at, but also to finish up, to wrap it up, suffering for righteousness always brings about God's purposes. God's purposes through His people and for His people. It's never useless, brother and sister. It's never useless. It's never a waste when we're suffering. It, it's not, it doesn't take God by surprise, and He doesn't say, oh, I wish I had done something great through them. All suffering can be used this way, but specifically and, and particularly in these verses, suffering for Jesus' sake, for righteousness, brings these things about for God's purposes. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, thank you for all that he did for us. Thank you for all that he's doing for us now. Lord God, we praise him, we exalt him, we worship him because he is our God. He is our master, our Lord. He's our Savior. Father, I pray that as we suffer just in being in this sin-cursed world, God, I pray that you would use that suffering for your purposes and your glory. Lord, that you would give us peace, that you would, that you would strengthen us and cause us not to be afraid through your word, through your spirit working through your word in our hearts. God, that, that we would rest in your sovereignty, in your goodness, in your power. But Father... As we desire and as we strive to live for righteousness for your sake, God, that will bring even more suffering. And God, I pray, we pray together, Lord, that you would work in that suffering, that again you would strengthen us, and again you would show us these lessons and remind us that you are working. And Lord, we don't need to be great in our, in our own selves. We don't need to be great. We can't be great on our own. But God, you are, God, you are great. Father, you are the great one. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to look to you for strength and for glory. 
God, would you be glorified by all that we go through, and would you strengthen us to endure? For your name's sake and in Jesus' name we pray, amen.